Welcome, my name is Pastor Scotty Bockhaus, and we thank you for taking some time to listen to some audio recordings from the pulpit of the Riverview Baptist Church. Our desire is to show the Lord high, holy, and lifted up, as well as try to be a blessing to those through the Word of God. Please enjoy this message, and we pray that it will be a blessing to your life. And if you wouldn't mind to take your copy of the Word of God and turn with me to the Old Testament book of Proverbs. The Old Testament book of Proverbs in Proverbs chapter number 29. The book of Proverbs in chapter number 29. We are finishing up our series of the book of Proverbs, just hitting some of these wonderful, concise sayings that give us much wisdom. And we've had a good time going through this year. We only have a couple more messages left. And we now find our way to the book of Proverbs in chapter number 29. The book of Proverbs and chapter number 29. If you wouldn't mind noticing with me Proverbs 29 and look with me to verse number 2. The book of Proverbs chapter 29 and verse number 2 the Bible says this, when the righteous are in authority the people rejoice but when the wicked beareth rule the people more. And if you're in the habit of marking things in your Bible, would you mark a phrase that we find in the book of Proverbs chapter 29? The book of Proverbs 29, and notice with me in verse number two, when the righteous are in authority. When the righteous are in authority. If you don't mind, let's go to the Lord together and let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you again for you being a wonderful God. And as we come to you now, we're just asking that you would give us wisdom and discernment. Help us to see this principle in action, that when the righteous are in authority, the people do rejoice. But when the wicked beareth rule, the people mourn. We're asking that you would help us to understand this principle, both in a physical realm, but in a practical spiritual realm in our daily lives. Thank you, Lord, and we love you in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, in Proverbs 29, a very real principle. We can understand this even in a secular idea, that when the righteous are in authority, the people rejoice. That when correct people are in office, there's a peace and there's a rejoicing. However, when wicked bear rule, it causes mourning, it causes agony, it causes all kinds of consequences. It becomes a very real deal. Now, by the way, the idea of righteous doesn't mean the people that you think should be in charge. But what it does refer to is those who are just and right before God. Now, to be able to illustrate this, the best way to do it is to illustrate it through Bible characters, through Bible historical people. If you don't mind, I'd like to show you the first one, Jesus Christ, the righteous Jesus Christ, the righteous king. Look with me, if you don't mind, in the book of Isaiah, chapter number 9. Isaiah and chapter number 9. And some of you are wondering how we were going to turn this into a Christmas message. Isaiah, chapter number 9. When the righteous are in authority, the people rejoice. Look with me, Isaiah, chapter number 9. 
Isaiah chapter 9, and look with me in verse number 6. Isaiah chapter number 9 and verse number 6. Let's look at Jesus Christ, the righteous king, and see what the Bible has to say when Jesus is the ruler. What can we see? What can we learn? Notice, if you don't mind, in Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 6. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there shall be no end, and upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it, and to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth even forever, the zeal of the Lord of the host will perform this. Now, of course, in Isaiah chapter number 9, this is a prophecy given. Remember that Isaiah was written in approximately 700 BC. That means 700 years before Jesus Christ was born in Bethlehem in a manger. 700 years before Jesus Christ, who was God, robed himself in flesh and dwelt among us. And of course, this is a prophetic thing, not just speaking about Jesus Christ coming on earth the first time, but at the same time, it is also associating when Jesus Christ comes again the second time. Remember that when Jesus Christ comes again the second time, he is going to establish what we commonly call the millennial kingdom. The thousand years where Jesus Christ will physically and literally rule and reign upon the earth. Jesus Christ will be in charge. The government will be upon his shoulder. That the Bible says that this is going to be a righteous government, a government that is right with God, a government that is righteous and just in its laws and its decrees, that it will be a perfect government. That when the righteous are in authority, that the people will rejoice. With this, if you don't mind, let's see the specific names of God given to Jesus that describe this time where Jesus Christ rules and reigns. Notice with me, if you don't mind, some of his names. Notice the first name in Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 6. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful. The first name of God that we see here is the name Wonderful. When Jesus is ruling and reigning, we're going to call him Wonderful. What does this mean? Well, the idea of this name is the idea of separating out for the miraculous. Usually, this idea of wonder is used in the context of miracles. Here it refers to the one who does miracles. That when Jesus Christ is ruling and reigning, he is still going to be the miracle working God. He's still going to be the God who's in control, the God who's overseeing everything, the God who's able to do miracles. I'm thankful that we have a miracle working God. Could you imagine how hopeless our world would be right now if we didn't have a God who heard and answered prayers? Could you imagine how bleak our world would be if we had no hope that God can interfere and do something? We have a miracle working God. This is why one of his great names that we call him, his name is 
wonderful. The God who's able to do miracles. The God who strikes awe and wonder in us that we say, wow, what a God. What a Savior. When the righteous are in authority, the people rejoice. Why can we rejoice? Because his name is wonderful. Notice there's a second name that we have in here. The Bible says in Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 6, For unto us a child is born, and unto us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful. His name shall be called the Counselor. Now, I'm thankful for this name. This word denotes rank, and it shows the wisdom of someone who is worthy to stand among princes, worthy to stand over kings. It shows the one who is qualified to guide the human race. Now, the name of God, of him being the counselor, is the one who could actually give us advice. The one who could direct our path. The one that has our answers. The one who could provide wisdom. He is our counselor that if any man lack wisdom, let him ask of God. And I'm thankful that the Bible says that God would give it to us liberally. And it says that he abradeth not. The word abradeth not means that Jesus won't yell at you when you ask for help. Jesus won't yell at you when you say, can you give me some answers? Jesus won't yell at you when you say, please tell me what my next step is. Aren't you thankful that we have a God who is a great counselor? who can tell us the next step, who could grant us wisdom, that when the righteous are in authority, the people rejoice. That we have a God who's a miracle working God. He's wonderful. We have a God who's able to guide us with wisdom, that he is the counselor. Notice as we go on, we have more names of God used for Jesus in here. Notice in verse number six again, Isaiah 9, 6. For unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful. His name shall be called Counselor. His name shall be called the Mighty God. Notice this. The Bible calls Jesus Christ, the son that is born, this verse calls Jesus Christ God. He is God. The idea that this phrase, the mighty God, actually denotes God as a warrior and a champion, meaning the God who won all the battles, the God who doesn't lose a fight, the God who is the strongest of them all. That's the one I want fighting for me. That's the one I want the winner. I want the one that when we read the end of the book, we see who won and that's God. That's the one that's the side we want to join. This provides us a clear reading that Jesus is God. And not just a wimpy God. Not just a pushover God. Not a God that everyone just kind of tells what to do and pushes out of the way. But this is a champion of a God. This is the God who's not worried about any foe, any contender, any enemy. That Jesus Christ is over them all. He is the champion. He's the mighty God. He's the God that no one could overthrow, that no one can de-reign. He is the God that no one can touch. He will rule and reign forever because he is the mighty God. 
as we go on. Again, the idea that we saw from Proverbs is that when the righteous are in authority, the people rejoice. We have a lot of reason to rejoice if Jesus is in charge, that he is wonderful, the miracle working God. He is the counselor, the one who can give us wisdom. He is the mighty God, the God who is the champion, the God who could win all the battles, the God that no one could dethrone. That gives us reasons to rejoice. But notice there's another name of God listed here in Isaiah chapter 9 and verse number 6. For unto us a child is given or born, and unto us a son is is given and the government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called wonderful his name shall be called counselor his name shall be called the mighty god his name shall be called the everlasting father here again we have a direct reference that jesus christ is god he's not the firstborn from god he's not just a descendant of God. He is God. He's not just God. He is the everlasting father. They are the same person. Jesus Christ is God robed in flesh. When it talks about the everlasting father, it's the father who rules from everlasting to everlasting. The idea of everlasting is a time frame. So in our minds, we could put it like this, from eternity past To eternity future, God rules. He reigns. He is that God. He's the God who will never die. He's the God who will never be defeated. He's the God who will never step down. He's the God who can never run out of gas. He's the God who doesn't need naps. He's the God who doesn't wake up sore in the morning. He's the God who doesn't need a vacation. He's a God who doesn't even need to sleep. He is the God who will never run out of power, never be replaced, never grow old, and never grow tired, and never grow weary. That is a wonderful God. You know, we have in our human world that if we did have a good ruler, that Ruler has a lifespan. He has a shelf life. And even if we had the greatest ruler ever, he will die away and then something else is going to have to replace him. But with God, he will never need to be replaced. He'll never be voted out. He'll never be overthrown. He is the everlasting father from eternity past to eternity future. He is God. That gives us some comfort That we don't have to worry about, is God going to get too sick today? Is God going to be too hurt to take my phone call to answer my prayer? Is God going to be too upset because of things going on and some drama in his life? You know, with God, we have a consistent God who is always on his throne. That doesn't ever change He is the everlasting father from everlasting to everlasting. No wonder the Bible says that when the righteous are in authority, the people rejoice. There's a great comfort in having God be in charge. If you don't mind, there is one more name that we find in here in Isaiah chapter 9 and verse number 6. The Bible once again says, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful. His name shall be called Counselor. His name shall be called the Mighty God. 
His name shall be the everlasting father. His name shall be called the prince of peace. The prince of peace. Now, because of Jesus, there can be peace in every person's heart. We know that left to our own devices, there is no peace. That left to our own devices, there is so much wrong in our life. That one thing is that we don't know how to get to heaven on our own. That left to our own devices, we can't get to heaven on our own. Left to our own devices, we don't have any answers and we don't have any solutions. But when a person comes to accept Jesus Christ as their personal Savior, to forgive them of their sins... That the wonderful thing that Jesus does, that he doesn't just merely forgive us, but he also can give us peace. We live in a world where there's lots of people who don't have peace. And they're looking for peace. And there are some people that go to the extremes that they're looking for some way to get a false peace. Whether they plug themselves into entertainment that maybe something can make me happy. Maybe for just a moment in time something can give me something. There are some people that turn to drugs and alcohol to try to give a peace, to try to take away the pain. There are some people that turn to other things, this, that, and the other. But the only one who can give lasting, permanent peace is the Lord Jesus Christ. And that when the righteous are in authority, the people rejoice. Why is it that we can rejoice? Because I can have a peace that passeth all understanding. A peace that doesn't make sense. A peace that is there day in and day out as long as I'm looking towards the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm thankful that he is the prince of peace. He's the bringer of peace. He's the keeper of peace. He's the one I could go to for peace. He's the one who could give me peace. No wonder the Bible says that when the righteous are in authority that the people rejoice. I could rejoice because my God is a miracle working God. His name is wonderful. I could rejoice because my God can give me wisdom that he is the counselor. I could rejoice because he is the mighty God, the God who doesn't lose a fight. I can rejoice because he's the everlasting father. He doesn't change from everlasting to everlasting. He is God. I can rejoice because he gives me peace even when it doesn't make sense, he can give me peace. When the righteous are in authority, there is rejoicing. However, the Bible also in that same proverb, in the book of Proverbs chapter 29 and verse 2, it says that there's an opposite here. That it says when the righteous are in authority, the people rejoice, but when the wicked beareth rule, the people mourn. You know, there's a king that's associated inside of Jesus' day. And there's a king that's associated even with this celebration of Christmas. Who was not a righteous king. And because of his rule, there was much mourning. If you don't mind, let's look at another person to do a comparison. And let's look at the person of Herod the Great. Turn with me, if you don't mind, to the gospel record of Matthew. The Gospel record of Matthew in Matthew chapter number 2. Of course, for Christmas, this is another passage that people refer to in dealing with Christmas. And we could see here is an unrighteous king. An 
unrighteous king who's in authority. And because of his life, because of his rule, their people have mourning. Notice with me Matthew chapter 2. The gospel record of Matthew chapter 2. And notice with me in verse number 1. And let's look at Herod the Great as regards to this story. Matthew chapter number 2 and notice with me in verse 1. Now when Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, there came wise men from the east to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he that is born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and are come to worship him. Now let's pause. This here is the beginning of Jesus Christ's humiliation. What do we mean by this? That Jesus had to humble himself to come to earth. That Jesus, who was God, robed himself in flesh and he dwelt among us. He humbled himself and humiliated himself. He stepped down from the glories that was due to him in order to dwell with man who is sinful and wretched and filthy, and he did it willingly to be among us. Now, you would expect that if God stepped down from the glories of heaven and robed himself in flesh, that there would be great celebrations. However, Matthew chapter 2 tells us that nothing, nothing, that the Hebrew people, they should have known where Jesus was to be born. The Bible said so in the book of Micah. The Bible says when Jesus was born. It said it inside of the book of Daniel. So the people who knew their Bible should have known where and when Jesus was to be born. However, nothing. God, in order to put emphasis that he had robed himself in flesh, had a special star up in the sky. And that wise men, the magi, the wise scientists, people who'd studied things, they saw the star, saw that it didn't uh, go away. They made preparations. They were rich. They got an entourage together. They traveled thousands of miles. By the way, this was not an overnight trip, no matter what the uh, nativity scenes of your favorite cartoon tells you. Mm -hmm. This was a two-year journey where the star was overhead. Can you imagine these Hebrew people who should have known from their Bible when Jesus was to be born and where he was to be born? However, and there's a star hanging from the sky, and yet, nothing. Nothing. Nobody's celebrating. Nobody's honoring. Nothing. When the wise men arrive to Jerusalem, what they are expecting to find is parades going on for two years, expecting streamers, expecting fireworks, expecting something. Expecting the people to be celebrating because there, the Hebrew people, their king was born. Their king has come. This wonderful king, this counselor, this mighty God, this prince of peace, this everlasting father. They were expecting great celebrations. And they arrive in town and nothing. Nothing. So the wise men begin to ask around trying to figure out Hey, does anybody know where your king is born? Anybody heard about the king of Jews? Anybody? Nothing. Finally, it gets to the attention of Herod the Great. Notice with me in verse number two, and let's read on for context, saying, where is he that is born king of the Jews? 
For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. Can you imagine all the blank looks like? What are you talking about? Um, the star, that thing? Oh, we didn't know what it was there for. And they ask around and trying to find something. Finally, they get King Herod. Get his attention. Verse 3. And when King Herod the king had heard these things, he was troubled. Notice verse 3. And all Jerusalem with him. Now notice this. The Bible says that when the unrighteous are in charge, what happens is that people are mourning. And verse number 3, it says very clearly that he was troubled and all of Jerusalem with him. Why would they say this? Well, quite simply because of the reputation of Herod the Great. What was his reputation? Well, Herod the Great's father was a traitor and he pretty much without having ownership, traded the, um, all of the Ju uh, Judea to the Roman Empire. Before that, they were actually an, their own sovereign independent country. But he sold them to the Roman government. Nice to, for the government uh, Romans to come in and say, hey, we own you guys. When did this happen? Oh yeah, well, someone just traded us. No problem. The Hebrew people, that's why they were so upset with the Romans because Jerusalem and Judea were never conquered by the Romans. They just arrived and said, hey, someone sold us to you. Congratulations. I mean, that was awful. Well, Herod the Great was his son and now he's ruling. Now, Herod the Great was a great politician. So much so that when there was a civil war between Mark Antony and Octavius Caesar, and there was a big fight, that what happened is that Herod the Great backed uh, um, Mark Antony. He thought Mark Antony would, would win, but Mark Antony lost, and Octavius Caesar, Augustus Caesar, won. And Augustus Caesar declared and demanded that Herod the Great show up to Rome and answer for joining the wrong side. So here Herod the Great goes to Rome. He has to stand before Caesar and give an account of why he backed the wrong person. That's not a good position, is it? But yet Herod the Great is such a master politician that he walked away from that meeting with the Roman Senate voted him as king of Jerusalem and Judea for life, declaring him officially throughout the Roman Empire that he's the king of the Jews and he became a good friend of Octavius Caesar. That's a good politician. If you could go in there to answer for being on the wrong side of the war and walk out being best friends with the emperor. Yet, <clears throat> not only was he a master politician, he was also bloodthirsty. Octavius Caesar, who became good friends with him, said it would be better to be one of Herod's pigs than to be one of Herod's sons because Herod won't touch his pigs. Why did he say that? Because Herod the Great had a mishap of killing his kids. That if his kids misbehave, he didn't spank them, he just killed them. And he would just kill people just whims. I don't like you. Get rid of you. Get rid of you. Herod the Great was such an evil guy. He knew that no one would mourn for him when he died. So what he did is that when he got sick, he had orders that the 70 most high profile people in all of the land would be arrested. And then when he died, those 70 people were to be killed. So that way, all of Israel would be troubled and mourn. So at least someone would be crying when Herod died. So when the Bible says, 
in verse 3, when Herod the king heard these things, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. It is saying that when the evil are in charge, that there's lots of mourning, lots of upset. Why? They all know that when Herod gets in these moods and someone dared to say, I'm looking for the king of the Jews. And he says, that's me. He says, no, no, not you. Someone else. He wasn't happy. He was getting to one of his killing moods and everyone's getting worried about what Herod's going to do. All Jerusalem was mourning with him, was troubled with him. Notice as it goes on, verse number four. And when he, Herod, gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he demanded of them. Notice that. He demanded of them where Christ should be born. Now, what he does is he gets all the Bible scholars and says, all right, guys, where is this Christ going to be born? Where's he at? You know your Bibles. Now, isn't it interesting that Herod went to them and said, open your Bibles and tell me where this is going to be at? The Jewish people should have known when and where Jesus would be born. They had their Bibles. People were able to look it up. And yet nobody was prepared for it. Isn't that sad? And Herod demanded. Can you imagine these guys were sweating? How would you like for the king to say, you better find this in your Bible or else? Bet you they were doing some intense searching right then. Got to find my Bible. Where's stuff at? Um, they may not have read their Bibles for a while. Now was a good time to start, right? Need to find it. Notice if you don't mind as it goes on in verse number five. And they said to him in Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet and thou Bethlehem in the land of Judah art not the least among the princes of Judah for out of thee shall come a governor that shall rule my people Israel. By the way, that's from the book of Micah chapter 5. You know what they did? They opened up their Bible and said, oh, here it is. Again, why weren't they in the streets celebrating? Why weren't they looking for him? Why didn't they flood Bethlehem and say, where is he? Why was it that God had to go get three Gentile magi, wise men from somewhere else, bring them thousands of miles over a span of two years to come and say, where's he at? And why aren't you celebrating? It's almost like a lot of people today that Jesus Christ is born and nobody's celebrating. Nobody cares. So verse seven, and Herod, when he had privily, privately called the wise men, notice this was a private meeting. He didn't want anyone to hear what he was going to tell these wise men. And then Herod, when he had privately called the wise men, inquired of them diligently. Notice again the words used here. The idea of diligently is that he drilled them. He interrogated them. He's, he's trying to get as much information from them as he possibly can. Inquired of them diligently of what time the star appeared. Now, they don't realize that Herod has a motive. He's like, when did the star appear? Are you sure? When did you see it? When did you see it? How long did you follow? Yeah, let's, how long did it take you to get here? What was your trip? What was it like? What was your travels like? And he's keeping note of all of this. This is going to pop back up. Verse eight. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and search diligently for the young child. Notice that if you haven't been paying attention to language, it's very important. Notice it wasn't young baby. It was young child. There had been a time span between the time of Jesus' birth to the time of this incident. Years have passed. Notice this. 
And inquire diligently for the young child, and when ye have found him, bring me word again that I may come and worship him. Let's pause. All right, so you've already got the character of Herod the Great. Is there anyone in here with a raise of hands that think that Herod wanted to go worship this new child? No, not at all. He did not. But again, he's a master politician. He was able to get uh, Octavius Caesar, the emperor, to allow him to get more position by backing the wrong person. He's a master politician. Oh, I want to worship too. I too want to see this king of the Jews. Please, if you find him, let me know. I want to see this child as well. He sounds convincing. He sounds great. But Herod is not a good guy. Notice as it goes on. Verse number 10, and when they, the wise men, had saw the star, they rejoiced with exceeding great joy. Now again, when the righteous are in authority, the people rejoice. They're going to go see the true king and they're rejoicing over it. Verse 11, and when they were coming to the house, they saw, notice verse 11 again, if you just need stuff. I just break stories. That's my job. So notice they arrived at the house, not to the manger, not to a cave. They went to a house. Why? No wife would allow her husband to stay in a cave for two years. All right. Once the baby's born, all the tourists is gone. Give me a house. Give me somewhere to stay somewhere there. They had a house by now. I know it just ruined all the major nativity scenes that you've seen around. Sorry. Well, let's go with the Bible. They went to a house and they came to a house and they saw the young child with Mary, his mother and fell down and worshiped him. And when they opened their treasures, they presented him gifts, gold, and frankincense and myrrh and being warned of God. Now, again, how bad of an evil guy does Herod have to be that God has to give them in a dream and said, don't go back. Don't go see Herod and being warned of God in a dream that they should not return to Herod. They departed to their own country another way. Now I pause there. Remember what I said about Herod being the master politician that presumes that the wise men were fooled by Herod. And that God had to say, don't trust him. Don't go back to him. Don't send any word. Go. And so they said, okay, well, we better listen to God. Let's go a different way. And they went home. And when they departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream saying, arise, take the young child and his mother and flee into Egypt and be thou until I bring thee word. Why? For Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. Now, again, God knows everything. He says, all right, Joseph, take the wife take the child, get out of here. Herod's coming and he's not coming here for to worship the child. He's got other plans. He's coming to destroy the child. Notice if you don't mind in verse 15, uh, verse 14. And he arose and took the young child and his mother by night and departed into Egypt. And they were there till the death of Herod, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken of the Lord of the prophet saying, out of Egypt, I've called my son. Verse 16. And then Herod, when he saw he was mocked of the wise men, was exceeding wroth. Now, again, this is not a guy you want to get angry. He's not just mad. He's exceedingly mad. And sent forth and slew all the children that were in Bethlehem and in the coast thereof. Notice this from two years old and under, according to the time that he had diligently inquired of the wise men. 
So what Herod did, remember he was keeping track, asking questions. They said, yeah, well, the star appeared about two years ago. Then we traveled up here. Herod said, all right, fine. They want to they wanna not show up. They don't want to give me stuff. I'm going to kill all the kids two years and younger just to try to get rid of this pretender. Try to get rid of this one that's supposed to be the king of the Jews. I'm the only king of the Jews and I'm going to prove it. Can you imagine a wicked king to send his troops to go kill every two-year-old kid or under? No wonder the Bible says that when the wicked are in charge, there is mourning. In fact, notice what the Bible says in verse 17. Then was fulfilled that which was spoken by Jeremy the prophet saying, In Ramah there was a voice heard, lamentation and weeping and great mourning. Rachel weeping for her children and would not be comforted because they are not. So Herod the great he thought that these wise men were mocking him. I'm going to show them. Went and killed every two year old and younger. And during this time, there was great mourning. In history, we call this event the slaughter of the innocents. Even today, you can go to Bethlehem and they have a special museum that still supposedly contains the bones of these children that were killed during that time. The slaughter of the innocents. No wonder the Bible says that when the righteous are in leadership, when they're in authority, the people rejoice. But when the wicked, when they're in charge, there's mourning. Now we can see this historically. We can see that clearly that Jesus is the best truth, uh, the best choice historically. But do you understand this verse doesn't just apply to politics and it doesn't just apply to history. This applies to your everyday life. You understand that every day you have a choice of who's going to be your boss. You have a choice of who is going to be in charge of you. Who is going to command you? Who's going to give you instructions? Who has the authority to tell you what to do or what not to do? And every day you choose who is in charge. Well, you say, all right, well, what's my choices? Who do I get a vote for? Who's the people? Well, the first one is King Jesus. Jesus is the Christ, the righteous, the counselor. The, his name is wonderful the everlasting father, the mighty God, the prince of peace. We can choose to allow him to be in charge. What does that mean? That we allow him to tell us what to do. We allow him to guide our path. We allow him to tell us what we should do or what we shouldn't do. That's the great choice. All right. You say, well, what's the other choice? Just so I know, who am I voting for? The other choice is you. By the way, in case you need a reminder, you're not righteous. You're not right. Left to your own devices, you're evil and you're wicked. And when you are in control of your life, and every one of us who are old enough to know better can testify, when we're in charge, there's great mourning. When we are in charge, we make mistakes and we mess things up. When we're in charge, there is not great peace, but our lives are troubled. Every day you must choose who's going to be in charge, Jesus or you. If you can imagine in your mind's eye that in your life, there is a circle. And in this circle, there's only one piece of furniture. There's a throne. 
And only one person can sit at the throne at the time. Either Jesus sits on the throne or you sit at the throne. And if you're on the throne, Jesus is at your feet. You know what a lot of people do with Jesus in their life? They try to make Jesus their servant. Jesus, go do this for me. Jesus, go take care of this for me. Jesus, I want you to do this laundry list and get it done by five or else. We love to give Jesus commands in our prayers. We love to, Jesus for, to tell Jesus what he should do in our life and what we expect him to do in our life. But it should be the other way around, even in prayer. Lord, what would you have me to do? Lord, in this situation, what should I say? Lord, in this situation, how should I handle this? Lord, in my day, what should I do? What's my next step? You see, only one person could be in charge of your day. And when the righteous are in authority, the people rejoice. You want to know what your best days are going to be? The days where you let Jesus be boss. You say, okay, preacher, I let Jesus be my boss. Oh, yeah? How's your Bible reading? I mean, that's how we get our commands from him. If you're not reading your Bible, Jesus is not your boss. How's your prayer life? Well, if you're not even talking to him, how can he tell you what to do? If you're not praying, Jesus is not your boss. How's your church attendance? Do you hit and miss or are you faithful? Well, this is his house. This is where he gives a pastor to instruct us who's in charge of your life. By the way, it spreads out much more than then when we deal with a conversation. Do we say what we think is right or do we go to God and say, God, you tell us what to say. Every area of our life should have Jesus in authority. And when the righteous are in authority, the people rejoice. Why wouldn't we want Jesus to be in authority? He is wonderful. He is the counselor. He is the mighty God. He is the everlasting father. He is the prince of peace. Why wouldn't we? If he's in charge, we're at peace. When he's at charge, we have rejoicing. When he's in charge, we have his miracle working power working on our behalf. And we can have his direction in our life. Why wouldn't we want him in charge? Why wouldn't we want him in charge? Because we're evil. We want to be in charge. We want to be the boss. We don't want Jesus telling us what to do. You could be a Christian and still not want Jesus telling you what to do. It just means you're not a good Christian. By the way, that's a daily basis thing. I wake up in the morning deciding who's going to be in charge of my life. I get out of my bed and immediately decide what do I want or what does Jesus want? When the righteous are in authority, the people rejoice. However, when the wicked, when they're in charge, there's nothing but mourning. The Bible gives a very clear principle. Now the question for you is who was in charge?
Now, maybe you've never had Jesus in charge. If you've never known Jesus as your Savior, you never come to the place where you realize that you were a sinner, and because of your sin, you offended a holy, righteous God, and that you deserve to be separated from God to an awful place called hell, and came to the place where you personally accepted Jesus as your Savior. May I tell you the first thing you need to do today is allow someone to take a Bible and show you from the Bible, show you from God's Word, how you can know without a doubt that you are forgiven of all of your sins. That's your first step of putting Jesus in charge. For those of you who have done that, then there has to be a conscious effort of putting Jesus in charge. May I say by default, you're in charge. You have to on purpose allow Jesus to yield control to him. You will not get out of your bed one day and say, Woohoo, I've been accidentally following God. It is a purposeful decision you have to make day after day after day. However, we have the proverb, we have the principle, we have the promise that when the righteous are in authority, the people rejoice. Do you know that you determine, you determine, not your circumstances, not politics, you determine whether you rejoice or not. And that determination comes not by you faking it. That determination comes by who you've allowed to be in charge day by day by day. That when the righteous are in authority, the people rejoice. Thank you for listening to this audio message. This is Pastor Scotty Bockhaus, and I encourage you to take this information that you just received and make a specific decision to follow after the Lord. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, let me beg you to take the time to receive Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. If you are saved, I encourage you to make a decision in your life to help you get closer with the Lord. If there's anything specific we can do to be a blessing or to pray for you, we encourage you. Look us up on the internet at riverviewbc.com. Once again, that's riverviewbc.com. Or if you would prefer to call us, you can give us a call at area code 920 530-6308. Once again, that number is 920-530-6308. If there's anything we can do to be a blessing or an encouragement to you, please let us know. We would love to make ourselves available. Thank you.